0: It's great to be with you all this morning, and we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series here at Journey called uh, Best Supporting Actors, the Old Testament edition. We'll be looking at some, uh, not so much characters, but actually people who lived and whose lives are recorded in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular. And uh, along the movie theme, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. I'm not sure how many of you have seen that, it's a... Uh, Not a family-friendly movie, I'll I'll give you that, uh, and and honestly, uh, a lot of it is pretty gritty and tough to watch. Life inside of a corrupt and unjust prison, there's all sorts of uh, suffering and cruelty and injustice and wickedness of all kinds, and so a lot of it is pretty unpleasant to watch, although in the end, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, there is redemption, it's in the title. Uh, so there is, is a redemptive story, uh, but if you don't know the little redemptive story, it's pretty tough. So there have been times I've watched it and my wife Liz has walked into the room during a particularly brutal or gory scene and just shook her head like, I don't know why you like this movie so much. <laughs> and makes sense apart from the whole redemptive story. And well, I think the Old Testament can be a little bit like the first three quarters of Shawshank. It is the first three quarters of a redemptive story. In fact, the greatest and most true and awesome redemptive story ever told, which is the story of God, is recorded in Scripture. The Old Testament is the first three quarters of that, and there are some beautiful moments along the way that point a way forward like there are in Shawshank, but there are a lot of moments that are actually kind of hard to look at and tough to see. And if you just casually glance at the Old Testament or randomly pop open to different parts without understanding the whole redemptive story, you might also shake your head and go, I don't know why people like this story so much. And as we go into this series, we're going to see some tough stuff, things that might be hard to look at. Uh, And these things in the Bible, I want to clarify, are descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible is actually brutally honest about describing the reality of the human condition and human behavior and human history, but that's not to say that that's the way things ought to be. So it's descriptive, but not prescriptive. And we'll see some tough stuff in the Old Testament, but we will also see that even in the darkest times, the lowest, hardest times, that God is at work bringing about redemption, bringing about actually the truest and most beautiful redemptive story ever written. And we'll see that today as we begin with one of my favorite people in the Old Testament, Ruth. And if you'll open up with me, Ruth has actually her own book of the Bible, so almost a lead character, but, but it's a little book. And it's sandwiched in there in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. So if you'll open up, with it's uh, page 187 in most of the Pew Bibles. It's where Ruth begins. We're going to kind of walk through it and touch down at a few different points. I want to begin and take a, a fair amount to help us understand the, the setting of Ruth that, that it takes part in. So the very beginning, Ruth 1.1, the book begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That's, so that's where we're starting, in the days when the judges ruled. And that refers to the period covered by the book of Judges in the Old Testament, which was a period of several hundred years and by and large was not a good time in the history of God's people Judges really recounts a cycle of repeated failure on the part of God's people, and it's a tough time. Uh, the concluding statement of the book of Judges, the very end, says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, if you're an American, you might not think that sounds so bad, right? Isn't that like our founding DNA? We've got no king, and we can live as we see fit. But in the Bible, that is not a compliment. In fact, it's actually an indictment that God's people had repeatedly, over and over, rejected God's good leadership over their lives and over their people. And as a result, there was terrible fallout, all sorts of violence and death and suffering and oppression and wickedness of every kind. This is the period of the judges. And the book ends with a climactic story of the aftermath of a terrible war, and then all the men in one tribe kind of stake out a village from another tribe, and then they kidnap all the women and carry them off to take them as their wives by force. So this is the larger setting that Ruth comes out of. It's rough. And the particular situation that we begin the book of Ruth in is a desperate situation. There's a famine. In the midst of all this. So we'll continue on a bit. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So the book of Ruth begins with the journey of an immigrant family, and really, actually, the journey of a refugee family. These are people who are fleeing a crisis, and a desperate situation. They're starving in their own land, and so they, this, they courageously kind of leave all that they know to head to a foreign land, and it's not like they wanted to go to Moab. In fact, Moab, in the period of the judges, was one of the nations that invaded and attacked Israel and conquered them, slaughtered many, many people, and oppressed the nation for many, many years. And then Israel, in turn, returned the favor. So there's great hostility here. So, I mean, it's scary enough to leave everything you know and that's been familiar to you and to go into a foreign land that's unknown. But consider a land where actually the people there really don't like your people. It's a hostile place as well. But they are desperate because there's no food at home, and there's food in Moab, and so this family sets out there in hopes of a better life for themselves and for their children. And for a little while, Naomi and her family's life gets a little better, but then it gets worse. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, just a rough life gets even rougher, almost to the point of, of total despair. This woman loses her husband and her two sons, and these other two women, Orpah and Ruth, lose their husband, and it's this painful, crushing loss, which is hard enough as it is, but for them in particular, in this time and place, it was frightening because in this ancient patriarchal society, if you didn't have a man to take care of you and to provide for you, you were really hung out to dry and in a vulnerable place. And again, this is one of those things that's descriptive, not prescriptive. But we've got three widows here now in a, in a vulnerable place, Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi. And Naomi is the most vulnerable person of all, because at this point she is elderly and she is in a foreign country, about as vulnerable as it can get. Now I'll summarize some to kind of pick up the pace here. So then what happens is, Naomi hears that there's food in Israel again, And so she decides to go back home, because at least it might be a familiar place for life is going to be miserable. At least she can live out the rest of her days in, in a slightly more comfortable place. So she goes back home and then Orpah and Ruth, the, the Moabite daughters-in-law, they start to go with Naomi to Israel. And Naomi stops them and essentially says, What are you crazy? You don't want to come with me. You don't want to come to Israel there. There's nothing for you there. I have absolutely nothing to offer you. There's no prospects. You would be so much better off to stay in Moab, or at least you know some people, maybe some connections, you at least have some hope of perhaps finding another husband and another life for yourself. Like, stay here. And Orpah thinks about it for a while and says, uh, actually, that's a good point. I think I'm going to stay here. Sounds pretty bad. So, so Orpah stays in Moab, but Ruth insists on going with Naomi. And so now we have our second immigrant journey at the beginning of Ruth, where Ruth leaves everything she knows and was familiar and comfortable in her people and her place to go to a a foreign and a hostile country, but in her case, there actually is no prospect for a better life at this point. And Naomi tells her that, like, look, if you come with me, there's probably nothing but more poverty, more vulnerability, more displacement, and more pain. But Ruth is all in, and and we see her words in perhaps the most well-known part of the Book of Ruth in chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen. She says to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth is all in. Given her whole life, her whole self, leaving behind everything she knows to be committed to Naomi, not only to Naomi, but to Naomi's people and, and to Naomi's God. Somehow in here, Ruth has come to know the God of Israel, the God of the whole world, and is throwing her lot in with God and with God's people. Come what may, come hell or high water, and it probably will be hell at this point. A life of vulnerability, a life of displacement, and a life of poverty. And we see a life of poverty actually is what she finds. In chapter 2, we're told that Ruth is gleaning for food out in the fields when she gets to Israel. Now, gleaning is a sign of being very, very poor in that time. The Old Testament law told the Israelite people to not harvest the very edges of their fields in order that the poorest among you might have something to glean and survive on. And that's what Ruth is doing. We find her gleaning. She's in a survival mode. But then there is a turning point. In the midst of her gleaning, Ruth meets someone named Boaz. Boaz is the guy who owns the fields where Ruth is gleaning. And Boaz is totally different from Ruth. He's a native-born Israelite. Ruth is a, a Moabite, someone from an enemy nation. Boaz is very, very rich. A landowner, Ruth is very, very poor, has nothing. But Boaz shows favor to Ruth. Favor. We see it in chapter 2. We'll start reading in, in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. I mean, that's crazy enough, just calling her daughter, this, this woman who is from an enemy, a hostile place, this foreigner who's among among his people. He calls her daughter. He uses family language. It's, it's such an embrace, such a, such a beautiful thing. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Now that's telling that he has to actually explicitly tell these guys not to harm and take advantage of a vulnerable woman. Like this is the kind of life Ruth is, is in here. Boaz protects her and says, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And there's that word in verse 10, favor. It's a beautiful thing it's a common word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, Cain, is favor, and it really means grace. Why have I found such grace and such favor? Grace, this, this kindness, freely extended kindness regardless of of any merit or anything done to earn it. It's It's not an earned thing. It's just kindness, favor, freely given, grace. That's what Ruth finds here. She finds favor, she finds grace. Ruth has no status, no achievement, no nothing that has earned this. It's just freely given. And this favor includes protection, includes opportunity, includes a new life. Boaz literally redeems Ruth and Naomi. There's a, he's called a redeemer in the story. He redeems their lives. He redeems their land in a literal way. So Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, and in doing so, he redeems the land that was in Naomi's family that would have been lost forever. And in this culture, if you didn't have land, like land was everything. So if you didn't have it, you had nothing. But Boaz redeems the land, and he redeems these lives. He gives these women a whole new life, a new lease on life, an opportunity, a place of belonging, family, a community, a connection, and an inheritance, and a name, and a future, and a possibility, and an inheritance, and a legacy, all these things, all to these women who are so vulnerable and so on the edge. They have all this now, and it's all favor. It's grace that they encounter. And most of the rest of the book of Ruth describes the ins and outs of how this all goes down. It's very interesting if you want to read it. But we're going to skip ahead now to the end in chapter 4, the finale of the book of Ruth, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. First of all, in here, there is like a spine tingling countercultural statement that Ruth is described as being better to Naomi than seven sons. There's no place that ever described a woman that way in writing from this period, other than here. This is from a culture and a time and a place when it was largely considered that one son would be better than seven daughters. Because if you wanted anything in this world at the time, if you wanted status, if you wanted a name, if you wanted opportunity, protection, wealth, you wanted sons. And sons were so much more highly valued. And here in, in this scripture, over 3,000 years ago, we have this crazy statement of a woman, this daughter-in-law, better to you than seven sons. Such honor for Ruth. And it's a daughter-in-law who loved, loves her, loved her. The the love and the grace and the care that's shown to Naomi through Ruth is better than whatever seven sons could give her. That's the nature of of grace and favor and sacrificial love. And then Ruth gives birth to this son who in turn gives birth to someone else and then we have King David. Ruth turns out to be the great grandma of King David who's a lead actor in the Old Testament. And David is himself really a gift of grace and favor to the Israelite people. Remember, we start this story at a time when they had no king, no ruler, and things were going crazy. And then they're going to have a king now in David, a king after God's own heart, who will lead them, lead them well, and point them back to the Lord. And he himself is a gift, a grace, a favor to the nation. And he comes out of Ruth, out of this desperate and vulnerable woman who was living crushed under some of the darkest weights of her time. She becomes the great-grandma of David. But it doesn't end there now. So at the very end of Ruth, there's a genealogy, which is another one of those parts of the Old Testament we tend to be like, okay, whatever. Uh, But there's ten generations here, the ten generations leading up to David. And this same exact genealogy gets picked up again and repeated in the very first chapter of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew picks up this exact genealogy, except that he adds Ruth's name to it, for one, but then he also continues from here, past David, 28 more generations. So the ultimate king, and the ultimate gift of grace and favor to the whole world, Jesus. And wouldn't you know that this woman, Ruth, is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great and so on, Grandma... Of Jesus Christ. How beautiful, this, this Moabite immigrant widow who left everything and risked everything to be counted among God's people and experienced the grace and the favor of God. And what a legacy, an amazing legacy. It's an amazing story, and there's so much we could take away from it. I want to share three reflections with you out of the book of Ruth so reflections on Ruth in the theme of the letter R I want to talk some about risk about real significance and about redemption so first risk we this woman Ruth is a risk taker like any immigrant really it, it is risky to leave it all to leave what you know to leave what you've had and and to enter into a new and unfamiliar territory it's risky and and it, Ruth case, again, there are no prospects for a better life on the other side. It would have been one thing if Naomi had said to her, like, oh, Ruth, you should come with me to Israel. I know this great guy, Boaz, and he's really handsome and kind, and he makes good money, and he's available. So if you come with me, I could hook you up, and you'll be set for life. Well, in that case, be a no-brainer for her to go. But Ruth doesn't know there's a Boaz. And she doesn't know there's anything. Naomi doesn't promise her anything other than further heartbreak and loneliness, vulnerability and displacement. But she takes it on anyway. It's risky. There's two things Ruth does that are risky here that I think are just risky by nature. One is that she commits her life to a vulnerable person, she is fully committed to Naomi investing her life into the most vulnerable person, really, as vulnerable as it gets. And in doing so, Ruth makes herself vulnerable. She opens up her life to all kinds of things, and, and that is really the nature of investing in a real way in the lives of vulnerable people, is that it requires us to become vulnerable ourselves. And we're called as a church in general, but in particular here in this city, to love our neighbors in the way that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. It means investing in a real way in the lives of vulnerable people. And many of you, many of us, are really doing that. We are invested in the lives of vulnerable people, vulnerable populations in our community. And let me tell you, that can be rewarding. Sometimes. It can feel good inside, and You can see good things happen, but there's certainly no guarantee. And in fact, it's a very risky thing. You you actually open yourself up to the possibility and the likelihood of a lot of pain, of heartbreak, of being rejected, of things actually not turning out very well, turning out disappointing. You open yourself up to a whole world of hurt, a possibility of a world of hurt that you might otherwise not have to deal with, but that's the nature of it. And if we wait for a risk-free way, to care for our neighbors and to love our neighbors and to invest in the vulnerable, then we'll never do it. It always comes with risk. It always comes with putting ourselves on the line and taking on a degree of vulnerability ourselves. And that's what God calls us to do, and we see Ruth do that. It's a vulnerable thing for her to cling to Naomi. She does it in such a a full way, not holding back. And the second thing Ruth does that is risky and is by nature a risky thing, is that she commits her whole life and future and well-being into the hands of God. She is fully dependent on God, up and going and saying, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Boaz says to her in chapter 2, verse 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge there's something about Ruth's journey into a new place that is an act of placing herself under the refuge of God she's got no other hope really and no prospects and she doesn't even know the place where she's going to she's fully into the hands of God she is stepping into a life of of real loss of control for, for Ruth, placing her lives into the care and into the hands of God means leaving what is familiar, leaving what is comfortable, stepping out of what she knows into a future that is really unknown and that is totally out of her control. That involves, again, vulnerability and, and risk. But that's really what faith is, friends. There is no risk-free faith. Faith is not calculating ahead of time whether or not we'll follow Jesus based on whether we can guarantee certain outcomes. Faith is not, okay, I'll believe in Jesus as long as it all makes sense in my head and I can wrap my understanding around it. And faith is not, okay, I'll follow Jesus as long as I can be assured that my current plans and trajectory for my life won't be disrupted too much. And faith is not, I'll obey Jesus as long as you can assure me that I'll still be safe and comfortable and have the things that I want. That's not faith. That's bargaining with God, that's manipulating God, and that's playing God, but that is not placing ourselves into the care of God. Their ancient descendant, Jesus, comes to us and just says, follow me. And and we don't get to say, okay, well, let me see, can you guarantee me that this will happen, that this will happen, that I'll have this, that you'll take care of this, and that, no, follow me. And there's risk. And we don't know how things are going to turn out because life is not in our hands anymore, it's in his. It's an act of trust to follow Jesus. He invites us to follow and invites us to respond kind of like Ruth does with an open-ended yes, an unconditional yes. Not a yes if, but just yes yes. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people till death do us part. That's the kind of just open-ended, unqualified yes that Jesus is looking for. That's the kind of yes we see Ruth give to God here. She lives a life of risk in following God and loving his people. That's the way it is. But As she enters into this life of risk, we see that Ruth ends up living a life of real significance. Tremendous significance, really. I mean, now we know Ruth is a book of the Bible, and so billions and billions of people know Ruth's name and have known Ruth's name over the centuries. It's clear she lived a significant life. But when Ruth lived and when Ruth died, hardly anybody knew who she was hardly anybody, by any worldly standard of significance, Ruth did not live a significant life. She was spent most of it poor, struggling, on the edges, on the margins, and really at the end, you know, there's people singing her praises, oh, Ruth is so awesome, but this is still in in Bethlehem. I mean, Nobody ever heard of Bethlehem before. It was really like a podunk, nothing little town that nobody outside of Bethlehem really cared about. So even if you're a big deal in Bethlehem, like, so what? Like this, by worldly standards, anyone who was considered significant at the time would probably, A, not know who Ruth was, and if they did, probably not care. But Ruth lived a very significant life because God made it significant, and God counted it as significant. Because, friends, it is God who really defines what a significant life actually is. And it's God who makes a life significant. We ought to reflect on that, because really the way that God would define a significant life is bound to be very, very different than how most of us would do it. We're so awash, us especially, in a celebrity culture. I think our faculties for understanding what significance is are so damaged that we don't even know we need to look to God to tell us what significance really is, because he alone defines it. I've been thinking this week about our, our good friend David Hartman, who's part of this church for many, many years, uh, who was in many ways such a regular guy. I mean, just such a guy's guy, so approachable, so approachable such a regular guy, uh, but, but an extraordinary servant in this church. He and Donna invested so much in the lives of youth here at Belmont Street Baptist for many years. And I remember when David came to Journey and, and he, he said, I, I just want to serve. How can I serve? Tell me how I can serve. And, and he helped launch our youth group here. And David cooked many, many pounds of breakfast food for men so that men could gather and grow in community together and, and love for God. David served on the welcome team here, which you should do. And he did it as, <laughs> as long as he could, even as he began to battle cancer. And, and that battle took away so many of his physical abilities. He served to the end of what he was able to do. And, and then at the end, he, he really was able to do little more than just to cling to Jesus in the face of suffering and death and loss. And, and that's what he did. And then in December, when David finally went to be with the Lord, it, w- it was clear that he was so beloved in this community much like Ruth was in her community. And now our community, is it's no big thing. And then a few months later, there was another death in the family of believers, that of Billy Graham, who's uh, probably the most famous Christian in the world, really. His death was international news. He lived twice as long as David. His memorial service was nationally televised and attended by presidents and all sorts of significant people. And after Billy Graham passed away, Donna wrote to our senior pastor Tom and said, do you think David got to meet Billy Graham? And I, I think Tom's response was so good that I want to share it with you. He said, well, do you think Billy Graham got to meet David? <laughs> and I just think that's, that's a kingdom perspective. That is how God defines significance. Whose honor was it really to meet What makes a significant life here is not what we're told does. God defines significance, and I will tell you that in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no celebrity worship, there will be no gawking over famous people and famous Christians, no adoring the significant people that we read about and hear about. We're just going to be adoring Jesus Christ and everyone who does, every life that is lived there in the kingdom of heaven, every life that's been swept up into the redemptive eternal story of God is a life of great and eternal significance. Because God defines what significance is. And it's God that makes our lives significant by, re- by sweeping us up, sweeping us into this story, a story of risk, yes, of risky faith and risky love, but of real significance that will last forever. That's what God does. So in Ruth, we see a life of risk, we see a life of real significance, and and we do, we see a life of redemption, of ultimate redemption. Ruth is a redemptive story. The actual events of her life redeem people, literally. Lives are redeemed, as Ruth, this vulnerable woman, leaves behind everything, leaves the safety, the security, and the familiarity of home to enter into vulnerability and to enter into displacement and to love in a risky and sacrificial way. Lives are redeemed. And then, as Boaz shows grace and favor, lives are redeemed. He shows grace, freely given kindness and favor to a desperate a helpless and hopeless person, a foreigner from another enemy race of people, enfolding her into his family, giving a place of belonging and security and a lasting inheritance, showing favor and grace. There's redemption. And now I think these ancient descendants just give us a glimpse and a trace of what we'll see in their ancient descendant, Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer, who himself left the safety and the security, the familiarity of his father's side to, tr- to go into a new a foreign country and to live among us, to take on a life of displacement and vulnerability and poverty and risk and pain and to suffer among us, to suffer with us and to suffer at our hands in order to show favor and grace to a helpless and hopeless race of enemy people, us, who had treated him like an enemy. He shows grace and favor, welcoming us into a family, giving us a place of belonging, giving us security, giving us a new life altogether and an everlasting inheritance to enjoy with him. That's what Jesus does. We just see a glimpse of it in his ancient ancestors, but he left it all and took on the most vulnerable state so that he could show favor and grace and kindness to us. And so he welcomes us to come to him and to experience redemption, to take the risk of believing in him and following him and entering with him into places of vulnerability and risk and loving others. And as we do, there really is no guarantee that things are going to be fine here. But, oh, things are going to be fine in the way that counts the most. Things are going to be fine for his people who he's redeemed and caught up in this story because we're going to end up with the lives of real significance with him forever in his kingdom. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. And praise be to the Lord who this day has not left us without a redeemer. And may he become famous in and through our lives and in our land. He will redeem lives. He will redeem your life, which is not a pretty story because that means there's things in need of redemption. It's a beautiful story, and he will redeem your life, and he will redeem the lives of anyone who puts their trust in him. And I invite you, friends, if you're still on the fence of taking that risk of putting your faith and placing your life in Jesus' hands, whether for the first time or in a way that you know he's calling you to, take it. Give him that open-ended, open-handed, open-hearted, unqualified and unconditional yes that we see in Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay until death separates us, but actually won't separate us in this case, until death brings us fully together. Let's place our lives into his hands and pray together. Lord, thank you so much for reaching into the heart of darkness, really, of our world and all of its brokenness, bringing about redemption, defining for us what a significant life really is putting yourself at risk to love us and to show us favor and kindness. Lord, in this moment, would you call out to us in the ways that you would invite us now to follow you in this journey. Give us courage, Lord, to trust you with ourselves, with our lives. To not calculate, but to really just go all in with you. We might not be safe in the meantime, but we'll be safe because you've secured a lasting inheritance for us. You have redeemed us. Thank you that we have not been left without a redeemer. And thank you that you use the most broken lives and situations to write your most beautiful story. And we pray you do that in our lives as we move on from here. In Jesus' name, amen.